0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kadok.
0: Billionaires I know, almost without exception, use hallucinogens on a regular basis. And it's it's still tripping me out. I mean, I'm tripping bulls here. (laughs) You know
2: what could help that?
1: Mushrooms. (laughs) Mushrooms. (laughs) Don't you think? They're delicious. Yeah, right? Yeah.
2: They're good for you, too. Yeah. All of them. All kinds of them.
1: (laughs) This video is from a YouTube channel called Solving the Money Problem. This is a guy who says that 75% of his stock portfolio is in Tesla, and he routinely fawns over Elon Musk. Plus he has a theory. He thinks that the secret to Musk's success is psychedelics. Or at least that's one of Musk's secrets. There's nothing new about this kind of thinking. Technologists have long used psychedelics to expand their supposed creativity. Steve Jobs was a well-known psychonaut. But over the last few years, this sort of thing has become much more widespread and much more banal. Right now we will try some LSD, named also like acids. This stuff is very small. It's just a quarter. You will get high even with this small amount of
2: LSD. So we will try it right now.
1: Meet Karel. He's a full-stack developer who lives in Lisbon, Portugal, and he uses LSD to help with his computer programming. I found this video on a channel called Honeypot. Honeypot is a channel for computer developers. For the work, I do it when I need some kind of concentration, some kind of different angle of, uh, of the problems that I'm trying to solve. It really gives me another perspective of how I can apply my logic, how I can troubleshoot the problems that I have, or how can I approximate to the solutions that I need to, to implement? The thinking goes that if you microdose, you can boost your productivity, because microdosing is said to help you get into a state of flow. That's what microdosing people talk about a lot, flow. The research is scant and inconclusive, But the evangelists swear by it. Like Dr. James Fadiman, the guy who coined the term microdosing. Ask him about what he thinks microdosing can fix, and he'll probably tell you just about anything.
0: A quick list, anxiety, general, social, academic, party anxiety. Asperger's syndrome, depression, ice-pick headaches, personal insights that are therapeutic, work-related insights. Learning, a lot of people have used it for learning, and uh, we have cases of learning languages more easily, advanced math more easily. Uh, work in general, improved work, amount of work, discrimination, workflow, quality, etc. Coming off of psychiatric medications that were deemed non medical
1: Psychedelics are our new magic bullets. And it's not just the internet weirdos. In more legitimate academic spaces, there is a research renaissance. People are still indeed macrodosing, and researchers are reporting promising results. LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and other drugs are helping heal people's traumas, depressions, addictions and anxieties. And that could all mean big bucks. Welcome back to the Investor Place Launchpad,
0: where we explore trending investment ideas and try to rocket them to the moon. I'm Head of Mission Control, Aaron Davis, and this week we're looking to expand our way of thinking by taking a trip into the world of psychedelics and determining if it's a space worth investing. As always, before we dive in, we'd love to get to know the- you.
1: Psychedelics were the meme stocks of 2022. This year, they're a bit down from their highest highs, but many say the long-term prospects are good. Companies like the Peter Thiel-backed Compass Pathways are making a kind of long-term promise. They're saying that psychedelics will eventually revolutionize our healthcare system, especially for mental health and addictions.
0: If Compass Pathways is going to be the McDonald's of psychedelics, could the Burger King, Wendy's, and Arby's of psychedelics be worth investing in? Advisor shares psychedelics ETF. This actively managed fund offers exposure to the emerging psychedelic drug sector. Thai Life Sciences ranks as the largest psychedelic stocks in the industry, with multiple programs currently in various phases of clinical trial process. Compass Pathways, a new clinical trial, will study the effectiveness of psilocybin therapy for treating anorexia. focuses on...
1: We are living through a psychedelic revolution. But this revolution is not led by the revolutionaries that you recognize. You might have once thought that psychedelics was a kind of countercultural thing but it's not anymore this is the era of big psychedelic psychedelics have become medicalized institutionalized commodified and instrumentalized but not everyone is happy with that today in darts and letters we look at the culture wars in psychedelic medicine <laughs> We'll start our story with historian Erica Dick. She tells us a little-known origin story for psychedelic medical research. It turns out that many of the pioneering researchers were doing their work in a small town in Saskatchewan.
2: The first phase of the research really does, in some respects, kind of boil down to self-experimentation or more (laughs) familiar kind of dinner party experimentation. But these are, you know, guys in tweed jackets tripping on LSD.
1: Later, researcher and journalist David Nichols rings the alarm bells about big psychedelics. He started ringing those bells back in 2018 with a frenetic speech at a major psychedelic conference. We'll look back at that speech and see where things have gone since then.
0: I think it's actually worse than I had anticipated. I think I was naive. I didn't realize how quick some of this would be. I didn't realize how many people would push into the space so quickly.
1: I'm Gordon Kadik, and you're listening to Darts and Letters. We're a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. That's a network of Canadian podcasts focusing on making the world more socially, environmentally, and economically just. Check out what they do at harbingermedianetwork.com. Culture wars in and around psychedelics are not new. In an earlier phase of psychedelic research... There were these deep theoretical and cultural divides around the drugs. There were battles between different schools of psychiatry, battles between indigenous people and credentialized experts, and between the counterculture and the establishment. During the mid-century, many of these battles were happening in an unlikely place. Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, as you might know, happens to be quite the pioneer in Canadian healthcare. Longtime premier Tommy Douglas is famous for introducing a universal healthcare system that first started in Saskatchewan and then went national. But Saskatchewan is less well known for being a hotbed of psychedelic research. Historian Erica Dick tells that story in her book, Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD from the Canadian Prairies.
2: I don't think Tommy Douglas was particularly interested in psychedelics per se. And he had his own personal interests in psychiatric care. He had worked as an intern at the major provincial hospital in Saskatchewan, the what's called Saskatchewan Mental Hospital at Weyburn. And he had also done his own master's thesis on psychiatric reforms, some of which kind of flirts with ideas of eugenics. But he does this through, he's studying to be a Baptist minister. And so his master's is around the role of churches and religious organizations in providing a kind of care. And you can see these kind of intersecting models. The idea that, you know, people should be cared for either in their own homes or should the state or the community provide long-term care for people with reduced capacity. In this case, he's looking at people with uh, what's called feeble-mindedness at the time, we'd say cognitive disabilities today. And so I think he's already got this real interest and he sees, you know, keeping people locked in these hospitals as a real injustice. It's very sort of inhumane. And so part of his vision for these reforms is aligning medical research that helps people to live more autonomous or at least semi-autonomous lives, but also ones that are relatively cost efficient, especially in a region that is trying to promote, you know, state-funded healthcare. So those two ideas really kind of come to bear in the, the context of psychedelic research.
1: So this hospital in Weyburn is slightly disturbed by, you know, people talked about it at the time as like maybe the biggest psychiatric institution in the British Empire, which may or may not be true. But I'm wondering if you tell me a little a little bit about it and what, what one might have seen there. I mean, was this the kind of one flew over the cuckoo's nest thing image that, you know, listeners may have in their minds?
2: Yeah, you know, I think these asylum style hospitals, you know, many of them had kind of gothic images. Some of them are a little bit different, but throughout the Western world, this is a time of mass incarceration or mass institutionalization. When we think of this sort of mainstay of psychiatric care is people living in hospitalized states. Mm. Now we might think of people living in the community. We might think of uh, big pharma as sort of the the first reach for our mental health needs. Um, but, For a good chunk of time throughout the 19th and early 20th century, the first way of approaching major psychiatric disorders was to put people in hospitals. So a group of friends of mine and I did a book on the Weyburn Hospital specifically and what we found in looking at the records from admissions, the hospital opened in the 1920s. So for the first 20 years of its existence, many people alluded to it as the largest asylum in the British Empire. I'm not convinced that that's true but it certainly was called that. It was a major building project. It was a major investment for the province. A number of the people, in fact 70% of the people who went into that hospital stayed there for the rest of their lives in the first two decades after it opened. And so this was a major expense but also, as you might imagine, a major injustice to families who were separated from loved ones um, and for people who were really kind of isolated from any other parts of the community.
1: I was going to ask you, obviously, about Humphrey Osmond, the real protagonist of your story. What drew him to Weyburn?
2: You know, Osmond's a a fascinating character. I've I've come to really, um, I've studied him for about the last 20 years and, and have been working with his family now to try to also put together different personal pieces I think he was somebody ultimately with a deep curiosity, a kind of unquenched curiosity about psychiatric reforms or mental health reforms, and that was what drove him into the research in the first place. And with that, the opportunity to work in Saskatchewan, I think for him the opportunity to work in this massive hospital with a bit of carte blanche for for doing the kind of experiments that he was doing, he was allowed to do the research that he didn't feel he could do in England. He felt there was too much hierarchy. He was too junior on the so-called totem pole. He wasn't able to really flourish in that environment where he was interested in hallucinations. He was interested in substances that caused hallucinations. And this was kind of considered very marginal, certainly on the edge of research in where he was working in England. So bringing that to Saskatchewan gave him an opportunity to sort of flex his intellectual muscle and try out some of these other experiments and align them with these political reforms that he was also quite sympathetic to.
1: A big aspect of this also was a lot of self-experimentation amongst the researchers and students and amongst amongst the researchers' families. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that, why why they did that and, and you know, how that was seen or whether that was unusual.
2: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think the first phase of the research really does, in some respects, kind of boil down to self-experimentation or more <laughs> familiar kind of dinner party experimentation, uh, you know, and this is before people like Ken Kesey or Timothy Leary get hold of it. And we think of psychedelics sort of moving into some kind of countercultural expression But these are, you know, guys in tweed jackets who are Mm. tripping on LSD. Is
1: there something to do in Weyburn when there's not much else?
2: (laughs) I mean, there is an advantage to being stuck in Weyburn, I suppose. So two things. I think the self-experimentation fit into a moment within medical history and within psychiatric history where the idea that one would know the experience themselves was not unusual. So if you were going to be a psychoanalyst you need to go through psychoanalysis before you can provide that kind of therapy. Many psychiatrists were trained in psychoanalytic techniques or psychotherapeutic ones that also involved some kind of self-experience, self-examination. So in some respects, taking psychedelics was part of that Mm -hmm. philosophy or that approach. If we think about this in terms of psychedelics and psychopharmacology, it starts to look a little different. The randomized controlled trial and this idea that observers need to be very sort of distanced from a very objective, mm-hmm. uh, you know, observers of these effects really comes out in the 1960s in, a, in quite a clear way. It's not the first time randomized controlled trials were used, but it really becomes the gold standard within psychiatry and pharmacology in the later 1960s. And I think, you know, earlier research with psychedelics, therefore, is not sort of outside the pale. People like Humphrey Osmond felt that it was their ethical responsibility to know what they were prescribing before they gave it to them. And keep in mind that this is before big pharma. This is little pharma in some respects. So there's not a ton of psychiatric medication that's on the market until later in the 1950s. So they're not competing with a number of SSRI medications or something like that that we might think of today. That's
1: one of the aspects of the story here that I found so um, fascinating and so uh, relevant to today Um, Not just because it's an interesting story, but the kind of, like, deep theoretical and methodological debates at the heart of this about, you know, what is a robust research study and, like, what is a proper way of, like, knowing or understanding a problem. And it strikes me that this was a moment for psychology, like, maybe you might call it sort of a revolutionary, like, Kuhnian moment, right, where it's like you have, on the one hand, a very institutional approach that is, you know, focused on, on the body and like electro, electroshock therapies and lobotomies and that sort of thing. And then pharmacological innovations are, are coming about as well. But you also have this sort of psychoanalytic approach that you alluded to earlier, and maybe there are other schools. But um, I'm curious about where Osmond and the psychedelic research fits within these various paradigms and where where there's tensions.
2: No, I think it's, it's a great question. And I really do think even more so upon reflection. So since writing that book, I think I think that psychedelics really did sort of emerge in the nineteen fifties in the midst of, like you say, a kind of Coonian paradigmatic shift in the way that we think about mental health treatments. So moving away from the body, and I would include in that institutionalization. So putting people in hospitals and sort of managing them um, and leading to a different a variety of bodily experiments. You mentioned ECT. Um, lobotomies, You know, this is the stuff of one flu over the cuckoo's nest and sort of at the beginning of the rise of psychopharmacology and what some researchers have called a revolution in psychopharmacology so that that becomes the kind of overwhelming paradigm that now sort of dominates our mental health treatments uh, approaches. And I think psychedelics kind of fit between these models. And in some ways, it kind of gets tagged into those psychopharmacological experiments because it is a chemical um, and a substance, but or, sorry, a series of substances. But by the same token, you know, researchers at the time and still today uh, are very keen on recognizing that there's a relationship between taking psychedelics and going through therapy. So although it's not really a bodily therapy in the same way, it fits with a piece pieces of that older paradigm. And I think what we're seeing today is a bit of a resurrection of some of that split <laughs> as well, that it doesn't really fit into the pharmaceutical model. Um, and yet, you know, we, we sort of have to sift through this evidence from the past and also think about what the future of mental health treatments might be as we imagine, I think, perhaps a paradigm shift taking place today as well.
1: How do other researchers make sense of it? And maybe by way of answering that, we could talk about a specific example. Like I'm thinking, you know, the the early research around like the idea of a model psychosis and Osmond trying to look at the relationship between schizophrenia and hallucination on, on psychedelics. What, what was he doing there and how was that sort of read?
2: Yeah, Humphrey Osmond early on believed that psychedelics, and I should say he didn't even coined the term psychedelic until officially 1957 but I'll call them that even though I'm speaking about an earlier period so hallucinogens was a word they used or psychomimetic so those that mimic psychosis Um, these substances and really what he was looking at was LSD and mescaline in particular he read about a lot of other substances he scoured anthropological literature um, to tap into different indigenous uses of mind-altering substances and he was quite I think um, open-minded and curious about these other models. So he didn't cleave to a Western model despite his British accent and his tweed jacket. And he looks very much like an establishment man. But I think when we look at his writings, he's quite, he's a lot more expansive in that context. He believed that by taking these substances, again, we'll stick with LSD for fun, that one could appreciate, he could appreciate what it was like to have schizophrenia and this would make him a better, more empathetic physician, a better psychiatrist. To that end, he encouraged not only sort of a chemically triggered empathy for staff working in hospitals, but they also began to work with biochemists and other researchers, bringing in a kind of interdisciplinary approach to imagine, like, if you can chemically cause schizophrenia, could you chemically, you know, solve schizophrenia sort of the can you determine an antidote for that so they started playing it with it also on a kind of molecular level as well now both of those theories sort of fell apart a little bit they weren't able to demonstrate that this was a true psychosis mimicking moment but nonetheless that piece of empathy was really important and many staff members commented on how it helped them to be more patient, more considerate, more, again, empathetic to patients who seem to be sort of caught in some other reality.
1: Another element of that, that I found particularly interesting, I mean, regardless of, you know, the success of the research and in terms of uh, its stated aims, I mean, one of the things I thought that it did do well was it, it, it stressed how like the autobiographical and like phenomenological aspects of, disease are like are worthy of consideration i mean this is really about like uh, comparing trips right um which means taking people taking individual patients seriously as individuals in their like idiosyncratic ways i'm curious about the methodology and what what the reaction was to that and uh, that sort of approach of really kind of patient-centered narratives
2: it's fascinating to me i I think that there's one point in Osman's life, you know, sort of at the end of his life where he's reflecting on his uh, his legacy. I don't even think he uses that word, but he talks about is sort of he's proud of participating in the foundation of schizophrenics anonymous. You know, this is a guy who coins the word psychedelic. He's, you know, a high flyer in some respects in the psychedelic community, and yet he doesn't he doesn't see that as his main contribution. Now, I think that it t- it says a lot about his vision or his reasons for doing this, which were not to make psychedelics into a household name, but to think about humanizing mental illness and severe mental illness in particular. So schizophrenia was sort of his focal point. And it's, it's interesting to see that the methodologies involved are very different than, than maybe treating a particular kind of mental disorder. I just want to back up for a second and and acknowledge that 1952 is the first the first edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostics and, and Statistics Manual or the DSM. So it introduces mm-hmm. this classification system that today's edition is now sort of the dominant the dominant way of classifying uh, mental disorders. At the time they called the mental diseases, and it introduces this kind of checkbox system. Um, that evolves over time, but, you know, how you cluster symptoms and identify different disorders. And that works very much against this idea of the phenomenological approach, which is taking in all of this information and producing these individualized accounts of someone's personality, perhaps their pathology, um, their own reasons for expressing their needs for intervention or treatment. So, Someone may come in with a label of schizophrenia, but let's discard that at the door. What do you think you need? What do you think Mm. distresses you? And just kind of turning that power dynamic on its head was something bold and brave in one respect, but it's also working against the tidal wave that becomes the American Psychiatric Systems model for evaluating systems of deficits and disorders that produce these pathological terminology And also the treatments that are then tailored to suit those particular categories. So, you know, we might think of psychedelics as kind of interrupting that process. I don't think they became big enough to to successfully interrupt it. But I think they they also represent vestiges of a different kind of methodology. One that is focused on case reports. One that more like psychoanalysis and psychotherapy are interested in this long-term evolving relationship with patients and and practitioners.
1: I wanted to ask you about Aldous Huxley, who had an extended uh, correspondence with Osmond. I believe he even edited a book, a collection of, of their, their correspondence. And it was through their correspondence that they coined the term uh, psychedelics. Why did they correspond so much? What was their relationship exactly?
2: Yeah, it's, I think, 1953 when Aldous Huxley, who was already... You know, he was was a well-known author at this time, and he was really curious about mind-altering substances. You can see this sort of, uh, this theme appearing in a variety of different uh, pieces of writing that he does, including Brave New World. I mean, in that case, these are mind-numbing substances, Soma. But he's really curious about this, and his wife, Maria, is also fascinated by different uh, paranormal ideas, she has a collection of friends who kind of get him thinking about psychic space in different ways. And so he hears about this research that's taking place in Canada and he wrote to one of Osmond's colleagues who ultimately gets them together. So he invited Osmond. in fact Maria, invited Osman to come to Los Angeles to meet these Huxleys and bring them mescaline, which Osman had on supply. And he did. So he drove to Los Angeles With Masculine, and he brought Aldous Huxley his first Masculine experience. And within a month, Aldous had written the first draft of Doors of Perception. He was so taken by this experience that had sort of transported him into an altered state of reality that, you know, caused him to think differently about his sense of perception um, and, you know, inspired him to write this book that for many people became the first guidebook for taking psychedelics in a kind of informal way. It was quite literary. It is quite literary. And it put words into practice that many people found the psychedelic experience to be extremely difficult to describe. And so here they had a sort of template for beginning to think about the vocabulary one might use, to think about the spiritual angle, the you know hallucination piece. There, there are all sorts of elements that kind of create this synesthetic experience where your senses are disordered or interrupted. This was really important sir, uh, for the medical community, but it also becomes important for the countercultural community later.
1: So in their correspondence, um, your account, you know, Huxley writes a little couplet to Osmond. He says, to make uh, the mundane world sublime, just a half of thanotherethyme. And then Osmond responds, to fall in hell or soar angelic, you'll need a pinch of psychedelic, which is where we get the word psychedelic. What are these two? Okay, so you got the word phanerotherothyme. I'm glad we didn't stick with that one. And psychedelic, what do those two words um, mean or represent? What are they, What's the etymology of them and why Why did they use those?
2: Yeah, Aldous actually suggests fanarotherme as this way of bringing in these Latin roots. Um, and I can't say too much about it because less has been uh, examined mm. with fanarotherme, although there are some groups now who are using fanarotherme and fanarothermic. To sort of capture some of these ideas um but again it's sort of like bringing to light different things where whereas psychedelic you know psyche of mind and come from comes from the greek root delos to bring to light and osmond wanted to infuse this with a kind of mind manifesting moment uh delos enlightening bringing to light and you know they, so they, they do this in this rhyming couplet, which is really cute. But they publish, or well, Osmond publishes the word in 1957 with the New York Academy of Sciences. And in doing so, it's quite strategic, not just the venue, but he and Aldous Huxley continued. To, they, they corresponded for the rest of Huxley's life, so the next 10 years. And they became very close friends. So their letters are quite intimate at times. They share family connections. And, you know, the letters are really rich. But they began to really explore, you know, what does it mean to put this word forward? You know, they didn't want, and coming back to your methodological questions, they didn't want a word that would necessarily sit comfortably with one sort of paradigm or one approach more than the other. They wanted it to be Mm. free of those other kind of baggage, if you will, so that it had its own space. And I find it fascinating that the word continues to be used as a bit of a a motivator, a trigger or catalyst for thinking differently. Psychedelic continues to sort of straddle these psyche worlds or the medical applications with the bringing to light, which also draws in some of those paranormal conversations. We can think about, you know, drawing in different ways of thinking about the mind and enlightenment. And uh, yeah, so I think it's kind of appropriate.
1: It's kind of perfect. Yeah. So what else was part of the research program? I know that Osmond worked with alcoholics, people with like alcohol use disorders. What sort of work did they do there?
2: Initially, they believed that trying to find a way of mimicking the experience of delirium tremens, so hitting rock bottom, would be Mm. really valuable for people who, and I'll just, I'll historicize this for a moment. So the idea that alcoholism was a disease was still really debated around this time. So it's not really... it's not really accepted terminology yet. Mm. It's a mostly male disorder at this time statistically, but also the ideas about what causes alcoholism uh, were considered to be kind of macho behavior, macho attitudes. So this idea that people needed to sort of glimpse uh, their end, you know, that you might (laughs) have some kind of insight into what would happen if you continue drinking. It's almost a kind of a scare tactic in some respect, but Most of them did not have this horrific experience that sort of helped them to glimpse hitting rock bottom. Instead, they had sometimes pleasant experiences. Some of them had very spiritual experiences. And When I interviewed some of the men who'd come through these trials early on, every single one of them wept as they talked to me Mm. about how profound this experience was for helping them to see themselves differently. And so very quickly, the ideas changed from encouraging someone to hit rock bottom or to see themselves hitting rock bottom to embracing psychedelics for a way of gaining insight into their behavior and changing their behavior in a way that it seemed some people like Duncan Blewett, a researcher in Regina, a psychologist said, you know, this is the equivalent of 10 years of psychotherapy. The way that one Mm. can gain insight is so much more efficient by combining psychedelics with a therapeutic intervention. And Again, anecdotally, uh, the people I interviewed 40 years later uh, very much felt this way, that it had changed their lives. In some cases, they described it as having saved their lives. And you see that language repeated in today's testimonials from, you know, a variety of celebrities or others who are now bringing those anecdotal stories to the fore.
1: That's fascinating. Another element of your story that I wanted to ask you about, because it does sort of touch on these themes of different ways of knowing, is the fact that indigenous groups came to Osmond. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the group um, where I have it, the Native Church of North America, yes. So for context, there there was a, a sort of a panic around peyote and the government um, was criminalizing peyote, and then the group goes to, to Osman to basically get sort of legitimization or, like, have Osman sort of push back against this. Could you tell me a little bit about, about this and then the... The the fact that they actually went to a peyote ritual, I think, was pretty fascinating, along with a reporter.
2: The Native American church is a syncretic organization, a syncretic religion that fuses different Christian elements with indigenous elements. And, you know, I think some people have argued that it really is a kind of astute response to different colonial impulses to wipe out and to you know eradicate or criminalize different indigenous religious practices so it's originally recognized in the, in 1918 in Oklahoma and you see these different chapters of the NAC the Native American Church popping up in mostly the American south and southwest peyote which is considered the sacrament of the Native American Church grows in real it's a long slow growing cactus and it only grows in certain areas really around the Rio Grande so around the Texas Mexico border so northern Mexico southern Texas not Saskatchewan this is not Uh, a cactus that grows in Canada. So it's interesting when we get a Native American church chapter registered in Saskatchewan. So they do this through the Charities Act and they're considered a registered religious sect that is allowed to worship the sacrament peyote. But the RCMP aren't very happy about this. And a number of reports start coming out from the 1920s onwards. And this really kind of reaches a fever pitch in the 1950s as a number of uh, federal agents. Uh, we have the health minister, the Minister for Indian and Northern Affairs at the time, and RCP officers complaining that peyote is, you know, uh, an intoxicant, that it is causing orgies, that people are having these, you know, drunken sprees on peyote, which is a pretty fundamental misread of what peyote does. But nonetheless, it's used in a way to kind of synchronize this with other efforts to criminalize different Indigenous ceremonies. And it very much is in alignment with a lot of those other kinds of efforts. So Osmond is invited in 1956 to participate in one of the ceremonies in Saskatchewan. He does so fully. So he takes four four peyote buttons that night. The whole ceremony is recorded uh, by photographs and by notes by the photographer and uh, journalist from the Star Phoenix. And so it becomes a bit of a kind of pinnacle moment for showcasing this ceremony. So it's perhaps a little staged in some respects. And so this puts Osmond in a really interesting position. He is uh, admired by the NAC and he gets a bit of a, I would say, a bit of a stain on him from federal agents who are like, hang on, you know, why is this guy with a British accent not supporting our side? Um, And that might be too blunt a way of putting it. But he goes right to Parliament and Duncan Blewett, the psychologist in Regina, also mounts a campaign and he he writes letters and has other people writing letters to Parliament really lobbying on behalf of the NAC, which in some respects kind of puts them outside the frame of what a lot of their peers are doing at this time, which is not participating in, we don't even see really red power movements until a couple of decades later, but we don't see that kind of alignment very naturally at this time.
1: So the crackdown happens soon. This becomes a media panic, a media sensation in the mid to late 60s. I think people know generally the story of like Timothy Leary and the counterculture and how, how psychedelics becomes a sort of part of that. What's like the Canadian context here? And why does, why does Canada follow so quickly? Is there anything, anything that's unique or different about the way that we approach psychedelics?
2: Yeah, I think the Canadian story, there are a couple of distinguishing features. One, Osmond and Douglas leave leave Saskatchewan in 1961. So some of that kind of foundational, uh, you know, the human resources element is sort of pulled apart. So this is one piece of the story that I think changes the sustained research that had otherwise been unfolding for a decade. Secondly, by 1962, Canada, which had regulated thalidomide, the United States did not, is dealing with the thalidomide scandal, sort of ricocheting through what's happening in in Western Europe at this time. So thalidomide is a pharmaceutical product that was first marketed as an antiemetic, so to stop you from throwing up, um, and as a sedative to maybe to help you sleep. And although it was not marketed for pregnant women, pregnant women like to not throw up and like to sleep. Um, And so they were taking it and what happened is these, these sort of outrageous scandal of these teratogenic birth defects or um, babies born with shortened limbs um, and a lot of miscarriages. So this causes a kind of lightning rod moment where regulators in a variety of jurisdictions, including in Canada, recognize that all of these pharmaceutical products that have been pouring into our, our medicine cabinets and onto our crops and into our paint and, you know, this kind of chemical revolution that's been all around us, maybe we don't know how best to measure the safety profiles. We haven't mastered the kind of risk analysis that is required in order to put these chemicals into mainstream use. So Canada occasions an inquiry, much like, you know, West Germany is, is really where uh, thalidomide was first produced. Um, So there are a number of these inquiries going on. Canada's paying attention to those European examples and pulls flutamide from its shelves. And at the same time that it does that, it creates a new schedule in its drug regulation system and adds LSD to that schedule, which is somewhat unprecedented. And many would say perhaps unwarranted. There wasn't a similar kind of scandal unfolding, although others say that this was a very astute move to recognize that LSD was in fact moving in that direction. Nonetheless, Canadian researchers bind together at that moment and sort of push back against the federal government saying, like, let researchers determine the safety profiles, not bureaucrats or politicians. This should be a science question, not a political one. And so this changes the methodology. And I think it puts more pressure on adjusting those methodological approaches to how do you determine the safety profile. So this is 1962. Timothy Leary loses his job in 1963. The media frenzy begins with Leary. And Canadians, I think, are responding to that as well. How do we know what's safe? And psychedelics kind of get wound up in this moment. And they start appearing on television programs, on on a variety of radio programs, where there's a titillation almost of how psychedelics are being used and how they're being tested. And Saskatchewan, in some respects, is put under the spotlight, but some of those key personnel have left.
1: So moving forward into the present day, there's, you know, a psycholog- um, psychedelic renaissance. People talk about that. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about the politics of psychedelics and, in um, you know, preliminary conversations with you, this has also come out. But one of the things that's clear is that there are sort of, as there maybe always was, as we can see from your book, sort of different camps, right, or different ways of sort of understanding, knowing, and utilizing psychedelics. He used the term crossroads, which seems apt. And given that we're at a crossroads, I mean, what exactly does that mean? Like what what is the future that's at stake?
2: Yeah, I I think on the one hand it is multifaceted. And I think there is a a future at stake and what that future looks like you know, unfortunately, I think we will probably boil down to the loudest or the, the voices with the most capital. And I don't know that that's necessarily mm-hmm. the most sustainable way forward for psychedelics. And I don't think right. psychedelics right. are a magic bullet. I don't think they're going to save our mental health crises. I don't think you know, they should be put in the water supply. I don't think, you know, everybody should have them and there would be no more war. I mean, these kinds of grandiose statements that sometimes get associated with psychedelics past and present, um, I don't think that's the case. And maybe I take my cues a little bit from the many years I've been studying Osmond, which is, like Huxley so articulately put, like psychedelics are a door, they're, they're not the end goal. They provide a pathway to a series of perceptions that then have to be integrated into whatever right. that future might be. So that like comes back to that multifaceted outcome that psychedelics I think are an incredibly powerful and exciting tool that mm-hmm. we could use in a variety of different ways to imagine better outcomes. And whether that is in the field of mental health or if it is in, you know, areas of reconciliation and indigenization, whether it's in thinking about humanizing addiction and mental health, or, you know, p- public health reforms, you know, you, you can imagine there are a variety of different projects where they might apply, and they won't be a single lens that we can use with, with psychedelics in order to achieve some kind of like singular outcome. But yeah, I think coming back to the doors of perception, uh, as cliche as it might be, to use that phrase here, I think that Psychedelics are a doorway.
1: That was Erica Dick. She is Professor and Canada Research Chair in the History of Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. We were talking about her book, Psychedelic Psychiatry, LSD on the Canadian Prairies. But she is also author of many other books on psychedelics and the history of medicine. You can find those on her faculty page, which is linked on our show notes. David Nichols is an underground researcher, activist, and journalist who has long been part of the psychedelic scene. Back in 2018, he really made a stir with this kind of frenetic speech that he gave at a major psychedelic conference. In that speech, he was sounding the alarm on corporate psychedelics. Now, Nichols is managing editor of Symposia. That's a kind of psychedelic watchdog group. I called up Nichols to learn what it's like being part of a subculture that is suddenly becoming mainstream and what that all means for the future of psychedelics.
0: I think this is the reality of Subcultures or cultures more broadly within capitalism, mm. right? You can look at like punk as a subculture. You can look at. Um, I'm reminded of Douglas Rushkoff's words on uh, the Merchants of Cool and an old PBS mm-hmm. special where he talks about how you know you get these marketers who come along and they find the things that are transgressive or that appeal to youth culture, and they try to strip out the transgressive elements and sell it back to people at the mall. Totally. And I, I think, you know, when I saw the sort of initial glimpses of of early corporate incursion into psychedelia, when I first saw that, there was this sort of, oh shit moment of, <laughs> and, and this had been happening, you know, for years, I had been concerned with the sort of grifters and charlatans and, and new age gurus that pop up around this stuff, you know, everybody trying to market you know, either their self-improvement classes or their retreat or whatever sort of corner on the truth they're claiming to have. And then suddenly it became very apparent that, oh, right, yes, the, the people with real financial backing and capital are now in a position to sort of use this biomedical narrative that has been pitched around, you know, psychedelics as the cure for Treatment-resistant PTSD, depression—you know—the notion of, I mean, w- what is more sort of hyper-capitalistic self-improvement jargony than the notion that you could cram ten years of therapy into a single <laughs> session? Like, talk about optimized and efficient and you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> bullshit. But you yeah, know, yeah, it, yeah. it it hits those points that track so well.
1: Well, we won't need Medicare for all then, right? Because I mean, this will be cheap.
0: So, <laughs> exactly so, that. so I mean, just to, to cut in on that point briefly, like for me, this notion that without doing anything about our material circumstances, uh, somehow you can come in and give people psychedelics and that will fix things, you know, like if you could just get the Uh, Israelis and Palestinians to sit down and drink ayahuasca with each other. Somehow we'd have peace in the Middle East. And it's like, you are you know, people don't go to war. Countries don't go to war because people's mommies and daddies didn't love them enough. And yet that's the level of political discourse that seems to track within these psychedelic spaces. Right,
1: right. So it's like a, not only is it like a technological or a clinical solutionism, or it's just like we have this magic pill, but there's like a like a social or political one where it's like oh we'll end war and racism it's like you know you go to burning man it's like the billionaires are are tripping so what so what are we to make of psychedelics then it's not it's not solving those deep tensions
0: well and that's just it i mean there was an article i wrote some years ago dealing precisely with people who were holding up burning man as the solution and and it was like you know people were claiming that you know burning man was a politically free space that there was no there were no barriers to entry you know never mind at the time i think a ticket cost like 450 bucks you had to take at least a week off from work plus be able to get all your shit out there you know like when when you start unpacking all of the implicit assumptions that people make in these spaces it's it's a bit of a nightmare
1: this has a has a rhyme to me with like the histories of silicon valley that that people tell about like the hippies and the counterculture becoming the billionaire class of uh, tech gurus. Does that track here too? Like in the early days, you you said you you saw grifters. Did you see the kind of like libertarian techno-optimists in the sort of psychedelic counterculture?
0: Oh, yeah. I or, mean, or, or
1: is it all, they all just arrive as like VC people?
0: No, no. Uh, they've definitely been here, and in a variety of ways. I mean, an, a real easy one to sort of point to is John Gilmore, who sits on the board of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. You know, he's one of the people behind EFF, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, and like... You can look at whatever Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or any of these other figures who are, you know, known to be, have been users of psychedelics or on the record about it, you know, what have you. I think you, you can look at like the whole earth catalog and some of those. I mean, I, I think the reality is that sort of weird libertarianism, techno-utopian, futurist, Silicon Valley, you know, it it it, it is that mishmash. You know that's certainly one one strain that is very alive and well. At the same time, there's sort of what we might call a new breed, a newer breed, or newer breeds of sort of uh, psychedelic venture capitalists, billionaires, what have you, where you've got the Sam Altmans, the Peter Thiels the uh, on, on the one hand, you know, and then on the other hand, you've got. Folks like Christian Angermeyer or or Ronan Levy, you know, people who you've got like real sort of serious political shadow players, big money, what have you, and then you have big money kind of goofy figures that are sort of just saying, ah, this is this is the next bubble, you know, the Bruce Lintons of of uh, what is it coming from cannabis and whatnot, saying here's the next big bubble, sink your money into it, get out quick, and and you can make a buck, and then I think you have the people who have more buttoned up. Sort of darker ambitions, socially, politically, you know, m- more broadly.
1: So, um, when I was looking you up, uh, this panel from 2018 came up in a few different articles um, at a at a conference, and you know, it, it sort of made waves uh, in the psychedelic uh, community. I'm wondering if you could like, you know, set this up for me. Like, what what, what is this this panel? Um, What was the idea and what were you kind of going in hoping to do as a panelist?
0: I guess the shortest version of this story would be to say that I had become aware that there was a company called Compass Pathways that was essentially making a play to be the first corporate psychedelic what we've referred to as corporadelic uh, firm. <laughs> so similarly to Rick, I don't have a problem naming names. Um, there's, there's a company named Compass that has stepped into this arena. They're a venture capitalist backed uh, endeavor that's looking to engage in a uh, vertically integrated model of uh, psilocybin therapy for depression. If we take a moment and look at this model of vertical integration, right, basically this means that, that they're looking to control the supply chain from synthesis through therapy and that ultimately gives them a lockdown where they can deny access to other folks really by any means possible
1: and this is the teal teal backed right
0: yes so yeah so right. so backed by peter teal so again when when i saw this you know this was like it was easy to say great there's no there's no guesswork needed about these motivations capitalism has been alive and unwell for long enough that you can kind of look at it and say, like, we know these these strategies, we know these game plans, we know how it plays out. And at the time, because of the sort of underground research I'd done, I had really good connections with a number of legitimate, bona fide, you know, upright researchers involved in, in the major psychedelic research Programs, And I started reaching out to people and saying, I'm really concerned about this. Actually, I, I <laughs> at one point, I wrote an open letter on Facebook, where I tagged pretty much all of the researchers and a couple of them untagged themselves. But basically, I said, Look, <laughs> here's here's what I see. This is what I'm concerned about. I would like to, you know, rather than than me voicing my concerns endlessly, I would like to invite you all in for a discussion and ask, are you concerned? Do you see what's going on here? You know, do you have thoughts and feelings? And like, let, let's have a conversation. Uh, that went off like a bit of a bomb. A lot of the researchers avoided conversation, but it certainly kickstarted things within the broader sort of research community, I had people reaching out to me individually, you know, like people didn't want to go public.
1: What are the specific concerns? Is it that they're the, funding research or, or patenting thing? I mean, yeah, what, what, what was the problem?
0: Yeah, in the broadest sense, it was you could call it like the corrosive effects, you know, it was a, an open letter about open science, right? So basically, what I was saying is at the moment, research is being done in university contexts. You have groups that are sort of share and share alike, things are very open source. There is no real financial, certainly not a profit motive or an obligation to shareholders. Right. So this is, this is what happens in a research context. This is you publish, things are peer reviewed, things are, are available, accessible. We can have open discourse. As soon as you start to get corporate entities in this, I mean, especially venture capital backed, right? You have a need for return on investment. You have uh, proprietary information. You have, if you're running studies in the context of a pharma company, you are incentivized not to run things as peer reviewed and, and available more publicly. You are incentivized to fudge your results. This needs an intervention and this can be stopped. You know, like people said, well, what can we do about it? I said, well, right now there's one or two, two companies. Like there are blueprints for this. And and I said, I don't think there's political will within this community to actually do what needs to be done. I pointed to campaigns like Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty, the fact that you can actually, you know, it, people don't want to show up at, at, at folks' houses and do noise demos. and But you're talking about a milieu in which – What people are looking for from participation in sort of psychedelic subcultures, and obviously this is an overly broad statement, but the the people who are following, let's say, mainstream psychedelic research are not the kind of people who are in for corporate paper jamming, Mm -hmm. sabotage, what have you. So it became, I think there was a lot of fascination about the concerns, the idea that there was concern. But then there was a lot of wait and see. And so I was sort of a last-minute addition to this conference. Uh, Behind the scenes, there was a whole lot of commotion. In the end, Rick Doblin, who is the founder, so one of his employees was supposed to be speaking on the panel. There was a last-minute switch where Rick came out to the panel because, and he said specifically, he he was hoping to rebut me. He knew I was going to be critical of what was going on with MAPS, which is the largest nonprofit in the space, has sort of been spearheading psychedelic research or or MDMA research for the last 30 years. It's very much a political project. They had been working closely with Compass. This is the Peter Thiel venture. And one of the things I had been pushing for at the time was basically for MAPS to stop working with Compass, that the the easiest thing, a simple ask that I felt would resonate with folks in the community and one that would have legitimate material effects was to stop the cooperation because MAPS was providing legitimacy to Compass and researchers, even those who felt uncomfortable, you know, there was sort of this, well, what can we do? This is how it's being brought in. You know, we want to be in MAPS, good graces. And Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed like a really simple request to make. And and because I was bringing up things like Peter Thiel's involvement and in all of this, Doblin sort of Rick Doblin's straw manned my arguments basically said things like, you know, I was, I was claiming that Peter Thiel was controlling, you know, access to psilocybin and all of these other ridiculous things.
1: Yeah. I thought your um your talk there was like, yeah, it was so kind of impassioned in the scene like squirm a little bit. But then the QA was interesting as well, where well, he put it this way that um, you were basically demonizing and he said, oh, we shouldn't demonize Peter Thiel. And Doblin mentioned how all of this like VC money is a sign of their success. That's a quote. This is a sign of our success. I don't think that we should see the development of for-profit companies as a problem. We should see it as a sign of our success that we have eliminated after 30 years or so of work, Maps is now 32 years old. We've eliminated, along with Hefter, along with other groups, the political obstructions for this research, which can now take
2: place. So now
1: what did you think about that when he, when he had that retort?
0: So it's it's really interesting trying to think back on this, you know, five years ago now, because of the shifts that have happened more broadly within society, right? Because, like, and in the intervening years, MAPS is head of public policy, uh, Izzy Ismail Ali, went on the record saying, we're not trying to shift the Overton window, we're trying to expand the Overton window, right? And so when you take things like that, and and Dublin statement, I mean, the engagement, MAPS has reached out, they call it bipartisanship. I think MAPS, Rick in particular, I think really enjoys the idea of being able to be seen as working with folks like Rick Perry, Matt Gaetz, Um, Well, at least enjoyed that before Matt Gaetz caught all of the various flack he did. Dan Crenshaw, I mean, literally out fascists, right? He calls it, you know, reaching across the aisle. When you take a look at the people that they're bringing into their tent and statements like, we want to expand the Overton window, I don't think working with fascists and Nazis and white supremacists is actually a a sign of success. Like, you know, maps even going back further. I mean, when I was younger, I I was concerned about the use of MDMA. I'm still concerned, but but the use of MDMA for maintenance therapies. And one of the things I I highlighted around 2015-2016 was the drone program. You know, you're having high rates of suicidality and depression Amongst drone operators, the idea that you could give them MDMA sort of to treat their their moral—I'm um, spacing on the term—but but the the idea that they've done
1: their angst or whatever, yeah, like their, um, uh, yeah, uh, um,
0: <laughs> on the battlefield, uh, and that you could return them to service, right? You could protect the government's investment through right. this. I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that that as a political project, I think, has devastating consequences, and I don't think. There's been any – to the extent that there has been consideration within MAPS, the project is largely a political project of getting acceptance for the idea of psychedelics irrespective of what the sociopolitical costs of that are. And MAPS has long championed the police, the military, you know, as this vehicle towards normalization. There is a political project that Doblin has been explicit about – you know we can bring in the right wing. People will not critique us as as drug loving hippies if we can say, "Well, we're supporting the troops
1: so what was the fallout of this of this panel?
0: It was a lot of people telling me, "Let's wait and see." <laughs> um, it was a lot of it was a lot of very bad sort of liberal to wanna be." progressive, progressive-ish sort of pushback of, oh, you know, yes, we understand this has been been the case in other industries, but sort of let's see how it goes here, this, that, and the other. Um, a whole lot of, I really like your message, but you seem too angry and like, I don't know about like some of the... Some of the the outcomes that you see coming, I mean, you know, we can fast forward five years later, and, and much of what was predicted
1: <laughs> in that talk has come to pass. <laughs> to be fair, you were angry. I, I, think, I was you know, angry. I'm not saying that as a criticism. But <laughs> no, no, no. People should check it out. You were, you were definitely impassioned.
0: I think it's probably one of the more, if not the most, impassioned public talk I've given. The things that had been going on behind the scenes, the amount of flack I had caught the amount of pressure. I mean, at the time it was it was quite built up. I think looking at at where things have gone since then, it seems pretty simple to say, like, I was right. <laughs> I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't get joy out of that simply because like it's. It's a bit of a nightmare as far as as what's gone on, and I think it's actually uh, worse than I had anticipated. I think I was naive in a lot of ways. i didn't I didn't realize how quick some of this would be. I didn't realize how many people would would push into the space so quickly. and i I don't think at the time at the time, I believed that psychedelic therapy was as effective as was being claimed. And since then, and since actually doing some investigative reporting into the clinical trials themselves, I don't believe that at all. And I think a lot of people stand to get hurt. And I think the the sort of bootstrapping of venture capital funds and and billionaires and um, the media narrative that they have been successful in getting that Michael Pollan has willingly run despite knowing that that there's a whole lot of bullshit in what he's promoting – there are a lot of similarities i think to what we've seen with opiates not so much in, in as far as the potential for physical addiction but i think as far as the benefits being way overstated and the harms being nearly ignored
1: yeah and in your your excellent uh, podcast series uh, cover story power trip you discover some some abuse and some like very odd behavior also like intimate contact and and practices that are a little shifty. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? What are what are some of, the, some of the big takeaways of that series?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people talk about the need for regulated psychedelic therapy, both because there's this massive unmet need for mental health services, and also because, oh, the thing, it, this is a way to regulate what's going on in the underground. And the underground is shady as hell. The underground is, it's a free for all. It's people who don't want oversight, supervision, who want to play shaman, who want to, you know, be the person in the room that is responsible for the healing. You know, people like to conflate the person giving the drugs (laughs) with the experience. There is a huge power differential that emerges around that. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, quite commonly people in the underground take advantage of this. To rewind a minute, when we talk about the unmet need uh, when it comes to mental health services, I mean, this is not going to be met through psychedelics if you want to if you want to engage with unmet need you know actually having some sort of universal healthcare actually offering material support through, um, you know, basic food, clothes, and shelter would go a long way. Then if, if you want to get into mental health services, there are tried and true, you know, things that that work demonstrably. Then, I mean, hell, we can look at the, the, the socio-political economic contexts that exist and say, well, gee, why do you think people are depressed and ang- anxious and like dealing with stuff in the first place? I mean, these are not new thoughts. Now, in the podcast... So the first half deals with sort of underground cult behaviors, a bunch of really bizarre stuff, but but totally normalized within sort of underground psychedelic circles. The second half of the podcast deals with um, things that we found going on in the clinical trials, uh, specifically the MAPS MDMA for PTSD trials. I think in in one of the more egregious examples, there was a... a Canadian study participant who was uh, phys- sexually assaulted by her her research therapists. Well during the course of the podcast we got our hands on on the session footage and you can see on we, we released a, a little mini documentary. Um, it's brutal. I mean it's the, the, the therapists gag, the participant they they climb on top of her they're in bed with her they're cuddling her spooning her at one point um they kiss her you know like uh, uh, each therapist at different points uh like it's it's um truly disturbing stuff and it was all captured on tape maps as the sponsor organization didn't intervene fda didn't intervene um the the research participant wound up going off to um live with with the therapy couple after the active session of the trial, but before the trial was over and MAPS knew that she was living on Cortez Island with her her study therapist. I mean, there are so many flags. There are so many issues with with that approach.
1: Do you think that this is um, a MAPS problem or is this a problem? Do you even think that psychedelics can work? In this, in this kind of model? Is this what they're for?
0: I really appreciate that question. I think there are implicit dynamics that come with mainstreaming, that come with medicalization. I think, you know, this idea that, that psychedelics are for improvement, right, or are for maintaining mental health, it's another distraction from what are our material circumstances in the first place? Why are we dealing with, you know, I, I think it was Mark Fisher, right, talking about, well, if we say that, that you know, depression is neuroinstantiated, you know, this, that, and the other, we still have to ask the question of what is going on to result in those neurological experiences? Like, what is the broader set and setting? And right now, it's, it's late capitalism. It's industrial civilization. It's, you know, we, we, uh, we have all of these. I mean, we're literally, the planet is on fire. You know, gee, you think people are depressed and anxious? Go figure.
1: Well, David Nichols, this has been a fantastic and enlightening conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. That was David Nichols, managing editor of Symposia. He was also part of the team behind Power Trip, that's an investigative podcast series on psychedelic therapy produced by New York Magazine and Symposia. And that's it for this episode of Darts and Letters. We're a production of Cited Media, and this week we were produced by Jay Coburn. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Koop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddock. This episode received support from the social sciences and humanities research council of canada it's part of a mini series that we're producing on the politics of medicine and on medical controversies this is the last episode of that series the scholarly leads are professors maya goldenberg at the university of guelph and maxwell j smith at the university of western ontario the research assistant on this series was yoshi miyasaka at the university of guelph thank you to them for all the mentorship, research, support, and guidance on developing this series. And thank you to you for listening. Check back in in a couple weeks. We've still got one more episode before we take a longer break and relaunch in 2024.